Hello, space enthusiast. You're now listening to Space Forward. Join us as we talk to leading space scientists and engineers about humanity's potential to achieve a multi-planetary presence within our lifetime. I'm Hussein Bukhari. And I'm Kelly Kowalski, your hosts. Tune in now for Episode 11, Finding Intelligent Life in the Cosmos with Professor Avi Loeb. There was a a report by the intelligence agencies in the U.S. to Congress admitting that they're not doing their job. You know, that's a very unusual admittance by the most conservative organization, which is the government, to say, you know, we're getting paid to figure out what flies in the sky of the U.S. There are uh, 143 incidents where we saw an object that appears to be real, but we don't know the nature of these objects, these unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP. And rather than scientists ridiculing the subject and shying away from it, I think that science has an obligation and science can try and explain it. Join us for part two of our interview with astrophysicist Avi Loeb. Find out about Breakthrough Starshot, a proposed flyby mission to our neighboring solar system, Alpha Centauri. And the Galileo Project, looking for signs of extraterrestrial technology the scientific way. Get ready. We're going forward with Space Forward. So Hussein, in your interview with Avi Loeb, you talk about this textbook, Life in the Cosmos, which he co-authored with Menisvi Lingham. And it's a pretty rigorous and scientific analysis of the many possibilities of life beyond our planet. Yeah, you know, he explains that it's an updated version of a textbook written in 1966 uh, by a Soviet astronomer and astrophysicist by the name of uh, Isaf Shaklovsky. And uh, it was later on uh, translated into English by Carl Sagan. Um, essentially, the book is how to make the study of life elsewhere in the cosmos more mainstream. So I guess in this updated textbook, Avi brings up something called the Kardashev scale, a theoretical model that classifies how a potential intelligent alien civilization might harness different levels of energy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Kardashev scale, it was uh, developed in 1960s by a Russian um, astrophysicist. It measures the energy consumption of a civilization. Um, but today, you know, we're looking at the expenditure of entropy, which is the second law of thermodynamics and is also measuring wasted heat in a system. So we're looking at the expenditure of entropy by a civilization instead. And Avi in his textbook is referencing this as one way to measure techno signatures. Cool. Let's go to the interview with Avi Loeb. So I kind of want to go back to the book for a second. And you spend roughly 10% of the core content of your book on Kardashev um, scale. Uh, do you want to maybe give us an overview of what it means and why it might be significant? Yeah, so the Kardashev scale refers to how much energy is being uh, harvested by uh, a, civil a technological civilization. And of course... You know, the, the level that we are currently using is quite minimal. We're using a fraction of the sunlight that is intercepted by Earth. And you can imagine that in the future, we will use more of that. 
um, and eventually use all the energy or a significant fraction of the energy that that is landing on uh, continents, you know, um, solar energy. Uh, that is sort of the beginner's level in the Kardashev scale. And you can imagine then surrounding the sun uh, by uh, photovoltaic cells that will use up much more energy than the surface area of the of the earth, okay? And there is this concept of the Dyson sphere, which I must say, engineering-wise, is very challenging. It's difficult for me to see how easy it is to construct a sphere that will be stable around the sun. But at any event, the idea is that you can, in principle, use all the power coming off the sun or some significant fraction of it. And then, of course, you can imagine using the energy of the galaxy as a whole, you know, many stars within the Milky Way galaxy. And you can even be more ambitious and say clusters of galaxies, you know, like a thousand galaxies. Uh, but um, the the more energy a civilization uses, of course, it, the more visible, the, the more easy it is for us to see it. Because if it modifies the energy output of a star, you know, we can look at stars and see if there is any peculiar star that where energy is being blocked artificially by a Dyson sphere. Uh, if energy is being used on the surface of one planet, it will be difficult for us to tell, except if, if that energy is being beamed, for example, in, in radio signals or in laser beams that we detect uh, as flashes of light, you know, which is possible. Um, for example, just to give an example, there, there are these uh, fast radio bursts. These are flashes of radio waves that last uh, uh, thousands of a second that can be seen all the way throughout the universe. And the popular belief now is that they are produced by neutron stars. These are stars that are the mass of the sun uh, with a size of a city, about 12 kilometers in size, that um, if they have very strong magnetic fields can produce these flashes of uh, radio waves. But uh, we don't know for sure. Only in a few cases we have some uh, potential evidence that it's uh, indeed the emission from neutron stars. So, so, so curious to hear your thoughts on on this. That you mentioned that advanced civilization utilizing more energy, but shouldn't it be the other way around? The advanced civilizations would optimally be energy optimized, or at least they should be. Yeah, yeah. So I. I don't subscribe to the Kardashev scale. I mean, what I said is that it's easier to detect if there was a civilization modifying the energy budget of its larger environment, it would be easier to tell that it's out there because uh, we will see something unnatural out there. But um, I, I, frankly, I think that, uh, you know, most likely the, the best you can hope for is a civilization taking advantage of the energy impacting on its, on its planet. And beyond that, the civilization will venture into space, you know. So, for example, a hundred thousand years ago, we left the jungles of Africa. And now humans uh, occupy apartment buildings in, in cities for their entire life. And it's a very different environment living in an apartment building for your entire life compared to living in a jungle. That's a huge difference. And we managed to make that transition. So I can imagine that in less than 100,000 years from now, we will uh, build a platform in space and occupy it. I see that less of a leap than the transition from uh, a jungle to an apartment building in London. So if you think about it, once you go into space, well, first of all, you protect yourself from a single point catastrophe. You know, it's just like the Gutenberg 
printing press that once it produced copies of the Bible that were previously handwritten, it was not such a disaster if one of them got damaged because there were many more. And in the same fashion, if you distribute humans on platforms in space, you won't worry too much if something bad, you know, like climate change on Earth. Okay, so part of humanity will go extinct, but the rest will be out there on platforms. So as long as uh, there is someone to carry the flame of uh, human consciousness somewhere, and it could be also AI systems that travel through space, you know, that do that. Uh, you know, there is this biblical story in the Old Testament talking about uh, Noah's ark. Noah uh, wo- uh, worried about the great flood and he built an ark. By the way, the ark dimensions were are described in the Old Testament and they are just the size of Oumuamua okay, in how many meet- meters and so forth. And the, the point is that we could think about Noah's spaceship by which we have an AI system with 3D printers that could replicate life as we know it on Earth on other planets if, you know, if we give it uh, the DNA information and as long as we can produce synthetic life. Uh, and um, people are trying to do that in the laboratory right now, the starting from a soup of chemicals and making life out of it. And for example, I have a colleague at Harvard named Jack uh, Shostak, and uh, he is uh, getting close to producing a living cell out of a soup of chemicals. And once we are able to do that, once we can produce life, we could potentially think about producing it elsewhere, you know, on other planets, rather than carrying uh, a whale or a bird or a uh, you know, a lion on, on a spaceship along the lines of Noah's putting animals in the ark, you know, we can actually carry just the information about their DNA and use the raw materials on other planets to make them there. And, you know, once we, it's just like the Gutenberg printing press, once we produce things like we have on earth, then uh, at least we, we can rest assured that a single point catastrophe will not be so damaging. And I think that's one mission that, you know, the longevity of what we find precious here on Earth uh, will depend on the way we venture into space. So my point is that uh, I think long before we try to harvest all the energy from the sun, which I don't think will happen. So I think uh, Dyson's idea, although fancy, is not uh, real. Long before that, humans will go on platforms in space and just live life there happily with the amount of energy they have. Now, you ask yourself, is it really necessary for them to harvest much more? Well, one example where they might be ambitious is if they want to propel themselves to close to the speed of light so they can travel great distances over a short time. And um, that's exactly a calculation that we have done with uh, my colleague, Manasvi Lingam, who wrote the book with me, the textbook, uh, we estimated that the kind of power that you see in fast radio bursts at a cosmological distance is the power required for a civilization to boost um, a light sail close to the speed of light uh, for a big cargo that could include, in principle, people at uh, a very low acceleration so that we can tolerate it. By the way, just to give you a, a sense, um, you know what, we are now sitting on top of the earth, right? So we we feel an acceleration of 1G. That's the force of gravity keeping us on the surface, okay? And you you hear about fighter pilots uh, getting up to a few G and their body, you know, it's not an easy experience. But at any event, if you imagine a spaceship that 
carries you with an acceleration of 1g, exactly as if you are sitting on, on top of the earth, you know, just exactly the same way. There is no distinction between the acceleration of gravity and the acceleration of a rocket. That's a realization that Einstein, Albert Einstein, realized when he came up with the general theory of relativity, the theory of gravity. He had a thought experiment about an elevator that goes in free fall where gravity disappears because relative to the floor of the elevator, you're not accelerated at all. You are floating. So if you have a rocket pushing you at 1G, it would feel just like being on the surface of Earth. And if you have that rocket operating at 1G for a year, you would reach the speed of light. Wow, it's kind of sad. In our lifetime, we won't be hopping on any spaceships and jetting around the universe. Yeah, but... You know, there are ideas to send smaller uncrewed uh, space probes to the next solar system over the Alpha Centauri system. Yeah, that's right. You talked to Avi about that idea and um, pursuing it uh, through the Breakthrough Starshot Project, a project founded in 2016 by Yuri Milner, Mark Zuckerberg, and Stephen Hawkins. Uh, definitely we did. And the idea behind the project is to send some space, uncrewed space probes, very light ones, uh, to the system. And uh, in fact, in the other episode, we interview uh, Zach Manchester, uh, who's kind of the inventor of these uh, chipsats. You can listen to our conversation. It's uh, episode eight. Okay, okay. But before you go to episode eight, let's get back to Avi and find out how he got involved in the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative. In uh, May 2015, a black limousine parked in front of the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard, and out of it came an entrepreneur from Silicon Valley named Yuri Milner, uh, who came to my office, uh, sat on the sofa in front of me, and asked me whether I'm willing to lead a project that will design a spacecraft that will visit the nearest star within his lifetime. And that meant since he is the same age as I am, that meant within a couple of decades. Uh, and uh, I immediately calculated that since the distance to the nearest star is four light years, you need the spacecraft moving at the fifth of the speed of light. Uh, quite uh, That's a thousand times faster than the chemical rockets we've been using so far. And uh, a factor of a thousand is a lot. It's uh, roughly the factor of improvement between Ford's T-car, the first car that was used, the first automobile, and the Sputnik, you know, the or, or all the spacecrafts we, we designed, that's a factor of a thousand between them and, and the first car. So altogether, we are talking about a huge leap in speed. And I told him that I have to think about it and then came up with a concept of using a light sail, basically pushing it with a very powerful laser. Uh, if you have a, a thin film of material, roughly the size of a person uh, that weighs about a gram, and you shine a powerful laser on it uh, with 100 gigawatt over a few minutes, then it will reach a fifth of the speed of light and uh, it will traverse a distance that is five times the distance to the moon during that time. And that was the concept of a Starshot that uh, the initiative that I proposed to Yuri as uh, the only path forward to reach those speeds. And we're currently working on uh, critical elements of this technology. Uh, they include the design of the laser beam, uh, how to make, uh, to combine a lot of small lasers into a very powerful laser beam, uh, the design of the sail itself, uh, making it of materials that reflect uh, 
all the light uh, because we don't want the material to absorb more than one part in a hundred thousand of the light. Otherwise, it will burn up and it also needs to be very sturdy, very strong, uh, the material. And then uh, the final thing is the communication across uh, a distance of uh, four light years. It's a non-trivial problem how to uh, send back information to Earth. And um, imagine taking a photograph of the habitable planet around the nearest star Proxima Centauri. What we would like is to get that signal across four light years. That's a challenge that we are also working on. So at the moment, I would say it's work in progress. We're trying to look into these challenges and we haven't yet gotten to the stage where we build a system to demonstrate that it works. So based on that, I'm, I'm sure one of the critical elements is getting there. But the other critical element is how to decelerate as you get to Proxima B. Okay, it's it's not possible if you move at the fifth of the speed of light. If the if the spacecraft moves at that speed, it's not possible to slow it down because what you need is a laser system similar to the one we use to launch it to slow it down uh, over there. And just the the starlight is not sufficient to slow it down, so it will just pass through the system. And if you want to design a system that can maneuver and slow down then it needs to move slower than that speed. And uh, of course that can happen, but it would take more time to, to get there. If you were to use chemical rockets to get to Proxima Centauri, it would take about 50,000 years. So we should have sent it when the first humans left Africa for it to be there by now. Yeah, about now. Yeah, yeah that, that, that'd be fair. Is there a goal associated with this project where, you know, getting to Proxima B and taking a picture? I mean, how do you take a picture at the speed that you're going at? That's not an issue actually it turns out that um, there will not be much distortion of the image uh, as a result of the high speed i actually wrote a paper about that uh, and uh, there is plenty of time to take the image uh, when you pass near the planet so um, uh, it will just look like an image uh, even if you were to move close to the speed of light it turns out that uh, an object that is let's say circular in in reality would still stay circular, even if you move close to the speed of light, despite of what you might think that, uh, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, it should get uh, squished. But uh, it turns out that it's not, if you do the calculation, that in fact, a circular source would look circular to a camera moving close to the speed of light. And one simple way to think about it that, uh, you know, after doing the calculation, I realized, you know, the speed of light is constant in all frames of reference. That was Einstein's uh, insight or assumption. Given that the speed of light is, is constant, then even if you're moving very fast relative to the source, light from the circular edges of the source will travel to you at the same speed. You will still see it circular and uh, it will not be squished. It's just tilted. So if there are any features on the source, they are tilted relative to their real orientation. Taking a photo of an exoplanet. So now you can see why Avi looked into the possibility of the interstellar object Oumuamua being a potential space probe flyby. Yeah, I can see why he would pose that question. But do you think Avi might have a bit of confirmation bias and that he was the guy helping to design a light sail probe to Alpha Centauri? You know, to be able to pursue a destination like Alpha Centauri, you need to have a passion for technology. So I think he's biased based on what he's worked on thus far. Hmm. You also brought up in your interview one of my favorite quotes by Arthur C. Clarke. 
Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But there's another guy who uh, put a twist on it. Yeah, another science fiction author, Carl Schroeder, rephrased Clark's quote and said, Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from nature. Basically, he's pushing the notion that either advanced civilizations don't exist or we can't see them because they're not that different from nature. So in a sense, looking for techno signatures might be a lost cause if aliens are super intelligent and they're able to blend in with nature. Yeah, I asked him about Schroeder's quote. If it's true, would we be able to see a natural looking alien technology? Well, let me give you a simple example. Um, suppose the next object that looks as weird as Oumuamua is discovered a year in advance before it approaches us by the Vera Rubin Observatory that will start operations in two years. Uh, it, it will be much more sensitive than the PanStars uh, telescope that discovered Oumuamua. And... Um, and therefore, it could see things to greater distance or uh, find more of the same. And suppose we have that information, then we can send a spacecraft equipped with a camera that will come close to it, uh, just like OSIRIS-REx mission, uh, not close to the asteroid Bennu, and actually landed on it and will bring a sample back to Earth. So now, if we get close to an object, we take a photograph and we see screws and bolts on the surface and we see some buttons on the surface and we see a label saying made on exoplanet X, you know, uh, then I don't think it's a rock. You know, that's an easy thing. Uh, so when you say indistinguishable from nature, it's clearly distinguishable because what we sent out, Voyager or New Horizons, you know, is clearly distinguishable from nature. If you look at the molecules that our refrigerating systems produce in the atmosphere, CFCs, they are clearly distinguishable from nature. You don't produce such molecules that destroy the ozone layer uh, naturally. You just destroy, uh, produce them by industries. And there is no doubt about it that if you detect CFCs in the atmospheres of other planets, it must be industrial pollution, okay? So we can search for that. There are markers of a technological development that cannot be mimicked by nature because the chance of that, that, that uh, happening randomly is similar to the chance of a monkey typing Shakespeare's work on a typewriter. It's very small. I mean, obviously the monkey might be lucky, but you can ask what's the chance that the monkey would type Hamlet. If we see Hamlet coming out, it's not a monkey. It's Shakespeare. Okay, so uh, <laughs> uh, so my point is we, we should be able to tell, um, you know, the astronomy community is currently defining the next generation of telescopes uh, that it wants to use. And one of the motivations for uh, the next spectrograph that uh, on a big telescope that we will use would be to detect oxygen or methane, uh, you know, the kind of gases that we associate with life on Earth, uh, to, to detect them in the atmospheres of planets around other stars when they transit the star. And the problem I have is, you know, that the Earth did not have much oxygen in its atmosphere in the first two billion years for about half of its life. Uh, and uh, even though there were microbes, uh, it's not fully understood why just after two billion years, the level of oxygen rose so, so rapidly. But at any event, that's a fact. Uh, therefore, if you don't find oxygen on a planet like the Earth, it doesn't mean that there are no microbes. But if you do find oxygen, 
It could also be produced by natural processes, some chemical reactions that produce oxygen. So it will never be conclusive. And yet, you know, the astronomy community is coming up with proposals for telescopes that will cost billions of dollars. And my point is, if we detect CFCs, these um, uh, industrial pollution molecules that cannot be produced by nature, then we will know that not only there is life, but there is industrial life, intelligent life out there. And with the same spectrographs, we can search for those. Uh, and so, you know, that's one interesting way of looking for uh, intelligent life. Another one is to look for artificial lights. Uh, we just wrote a paper with uh, an undergraduate student at Stanford uh, saying that uh, the James Webb Space Telescope can search for city lights on uh, the dark side of the habitable planet next to the nearest star, Proxima Centauri. Uh, you can infer whether the dark side is completely dark or it has some city lights on it. Uh, so that's another interesting signature, looking for artificial lights. Uh, one can also look for artificial lights in the solar system. Well, how can you tell if you see a source of light, how can you tell if it reflects sunlight or produces its own light? The way you can tell is by how it dims as it gets away from us. Uh, a source that just reflects sunlight, uh, like asteroids or you know rocks, the, the amount of light that we see, the flux that we see, the brightness of the source declines inversely with distance to the fourth power because as the source moves away, it intercepts less light from the sun. And, and then because it moves farther away, we see even less than that. So altogether, it gives you uh, a dependence on inver uh, one over the distance to the fourth power. Whereas if a source produces its own light, like a spaceship or a city, then you would see an in inverse distance squared dependence. So so that's uh, one way to tell the difference. And we show that a city like Tokyo, for example, would be visible all the way to the Kuiper Belt, the edge of, of uh, where the planets are uh, in the solar system. And uh, I asked, uh, after we wrote this paper, I asked uh, an astronomer that discovered most of the objects in the Kuiper Belt. And I said, uh, did you ever check if, they, uh, if their flux, the brightness, uh, declines inversely with distance squared or distance to the fourth power. And he said, why should I check? It must be rocks, therefore it must go like inversely with distance to the fourth. And that shows you that, you know, without checking, without being open-minded, you will never discover new things. Uh, you know, so I'm trying to change this intellectual landscape. So why don't you tell us about how you're trying to change the landscape of searching for intelligent life? Yeah, so SETI was engaged for 70 years, mostly in the search for electromagnetic signals, for radio signals or laser signals from distant uh, uh, civilizations. And that is just like trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be alive when you're listening. Uh, and it may be misguided because um, it's possible that most civilizations predated us and they are dead by now. Uh, in that case, it doesn't mean that we cannot find their relics. Uh, we can just engage in archaeology, just like we do on Earth, where we find relics left behind from cultures that predated us. And we can do the same thing in space. And so my point is, looking for physical objects is a completely new frontier that was not yet practiced. And uh, 
Oumuamua was a wake-up call. So on that note, why don't you tell us about the Galileo project? Right. So we have two major components to the project. And I should say this project was conceived over the past month, partly as a result of my book about Oumuamua. Um, the book is extraterrestrial and, uh, and there was a huge response and interest from the public. And the second part is um, a month ago, there was a, a report by the intelligence agencies in the U.S. to Congress admitting that they're not doing their job. You know, that's a very unusual admittance by the most conservative organization uh, that you find, which is the government, to say, you know, we're getting paid to figure out what flies in the sky of the U.S. There are uh, 143 uh, incidents where we saw an object that appears to be real, as far as we can tell, because we detected it in multiple instruments and various eyewitness testimonies that noticed the same thing, doing the same thing. But we don't know the nature of these objects. Uh, and that, for, for the... For the intelligence agencies to admit that, I find it quite unusual because that's their job. And secondly, if they thought that it's China or Russia, um, then they would have kept it to themselves. They wouldn't come to the Congress and say, you know, something that we believe is human made, you know, we don't know the nature of. Because, you know, if it's China or Russia, they, they really need to figure out what technologies those nations use. But if they believe that it behaved in waves, in ways that cannot be explained by human-made technologies, then, of course, they would report about it. So my point is, after this report came out, I, I made the point that, you know, it's sufficiently intriguing for this subject to move away from the talking points of politicians and military personnel to the realm of science, because scientists have an obligation to attend to uh, uh, the interest of the public, in particular politicians that say, here is something we don't understand. And science can try and explain it rather than scientists ridiculing the subject and shying away from it. And by that, they would maintain uh, the uncertainty about the nature of these objects, these unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP. You know, the, the analogy I would draw is a thousand years ago when people, uh, uh, some people argue that the human body has a soul and therefore anatomy should be forbidden. Uh, so just imagine that scientists would say, Okay, this subject is controversial. There is nonsense being said about it. We don't want to deal with it. Uh, where would modern medicine be if we didn't operate people and we didn't know what's inside the human body? So I think that science has an obligation to attend to a challenge posed by the government, where the government says, this is something we don't understand. Uh, you know, you wouldn't expect a politician to explain what what is being seen in the sky. That's the job of an astronomer. And so I said, well, indeed, science should do it. Scientists should do it. And uh, around the same time, the, the uh, administrator of NASA, uh, Bill Nelson, said the same thing. So I actually wrote to people under him and said, here I am to serve. You know, if you want, I'll, I'll be glad to help you. Uh, I didn't get a response. And uh, then a week later, I get uh, an email from the administrator of the astronomy department at Harvard and telling me, you have a new research fund. And I said, what do you mean I have a new research fund? That never happens in academia. Uh, who is the person that gave me that money? And uh, she said, um, you know, I'm not sure. I, I, let me look into that. And it took them a day to get back to me. But 
Then another a multi-billionaire showed up in the, on the porch of my home and asked me questions about my book. And then another one, another multi-billionaire came over and uh, altogether within two weeks, uh, I had uh, nearly $2 million. And at that point I said, okay, that's enough. I don't need uh, anyone's approval. I can assemble a team of exceptional scientists, mostly astronomers, that will design telescopes that could tell us the nature of UAP. And the way to do it is by having in each system a few telescopes uh, that get a high-resolution image of an object of interest so that we can tell that it's not a bird, it's not a drone, it's not an airplane, it's something else. And then uh, monitoring the motion of this thing in three dimensions. Uh, and the data will go um, to a, a video camera that will feed it to a computer system that will analyze it. And uh, just in, in a scientific way, you know, you don't want to rely on a camera that is in a jittery cockpit of a fighter jet because that's not under control. And eyewitness testimonies are not relevant in science. You can't write a paper saying, this person told me that. This is not acceptable in science. You have to rely on instruments giving you quantitative data. So we will do just that, uh, design a telescope system that is optimal for the purpose that, that we are talking about. And then um, the more funding we have, the more telescope systems we will build. Then in principle, they can go to many geographical locations, many countries. Um, and that's what we hope to do. I mean, I hope to have uh, hundreds of those or even more. So that uh, hopefully will provide open data. And then I think the public could potentially look at this data and analyze it on, on its own because uh, it will be open. The analysis will be transparent. Uh, I don't want to look at classified data because it would limit my freedom as a scientist. And frankly, much of this data was taken by instruments that were not optimally designed for this purpose. So I think in terms of the public, the most interesting aspect would be the open data that we will release because we are designing the telescopes to be not just the kind of things that you can uh, put together yourself. I mean, it will be uh, professional telescope systems that astronomers design and uh, but the data from those would be available to everyone. And once we get to um, uh, getting the data, it will be open to the public. And, uh, you know, the public might identify things in the data that we haven't noticed. And that would be fascinating. So uh, it's very different from the data collected by the government, by uh, by classified sensors. So we don't want to deal with uh, government-owned data. We want to produce our own data. Just like a kid, you know, when you tell a kid what the truth is, the kid ignores you. The kid wants to find out the truth himself or herself. Uh, and that's what we are doing in the Galileo Project. I mean, I'm definitely very, very excited to see if our audience and when our audience is ready to engage with you on this Galileo project, because I think it's taking that next step to to go in that direction, because science requires valuable truth, and we need to extrapolate that as much as possible. So thank you so much for being on here. We really, really appreciate your time, and we hope we can have you in the future again. Yeah, it was my pleasure, and I'll definitely be glad to report about results that we find uh, because, uh, you know, we should keep our eyes on the ball. And uh, if we ever get the ball into the net, I will let you know. Keep your eye on the ball. Spaceballs. Wasn't that a film? Do you know about that one? No, I don't. Oh, it's a super cheesy 80s film. Ah, <laughs> I need to watch it with Mel Brooks and John Candy. <laughs> 
Okay, either way, I'm pretty excited to hear if uh, Avi ever finds those space balls or space orbs or spaceships. So let's stay tuned for that. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space Forward. Stay tuned for more deep dives, explorations, and journeys we have in store for you. Follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. 